Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to the next installment of Investment Friday with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. We've got some interesting topics to talk about today, Um, a little bit of a market update, and then we're going to talk, should you get more conservative when you get to retirement and what's going on with options as a follow-up to last week's episode about the VIX, the V-I-X index. So Brad, thanks for being here, man. What's up? You're welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. If you'll notice, I wore green because it was green on the screen today. The stock market was up today. Again, we're recording this Thursday afternoon of September 14th. So just in case anybody, if it's not up tomorrow, right? <laughs> this is released. They won't think I was, you know, just pulling their leg. Right. Um, yeah, things are things are going well. Things are going really well. How are so- you? Oh, I'm good. Recorded a couple podcasts today and um, some new new things happening um, in the Hannah Chapman world. So it's good. It's awesome. good. Yeah. And it's almost fall. We're getting some of those like glimpses. The tops of the trees in Cincinnati are starting to turn red and orange. And so this is my favorite season for sure. So I'm oh, really excited. That's nice. In Arizona, the cactus don't turn any colors. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just always green and spiky. <laughs> right. And brown. And there's so much. I'm always uh, so like when I go from especially Ohio in the summer and go back to visit Arizona where my family lives, I'm always like, wow, there's a lot of brown. It's yeah. So much, so much brown. <laughs> brown, pinks and purples. That's, yes. That is the... Uh, you know, that's the state flag. So what are you going to do? <laughs> so let's talk about what happened today um, a little bit and what we're kind of um, looking at, looking out for over the next couple of weeks. And then we'll move into our listener questions. So um, give us a rundown of the news that happened and came out this week. Perfect. So we had the United States CPI, which is the consumer price index, which is a measure of for the average urban consumer, what their inflation rate looks like. And it virtually came out as expected. It it was not market moving in any way. It kind of confirmed what we were already expecting in terms of inflation. Um, And so again, it didn't really move the markets that much. It kind of gave them the comfort that we're as is. Um, Similarly, the PPI, which is the United States Producer Price Index. So it's that measure of inflation within the manufacturing, within the the fulfillment chain, if you will, of a service and a a product, um, how, you know, what kind of inflation you experience there. And it also came out today pretty benign, um, as expected, didn't really move any markets that much, kind of confirmed that we were at a a pretty decent level uh, with that index. Um, Also, the European Central Bank came out, raised rates, kind of intimated that this might be their last interest rate increase. Mm. And so with that kind of cessation of 
hiking interest rates, you had risk assets, meaning stocks and real estate and some commodities, actually really start to rally um, pretty nicely today. I mean, I think the S&P was up 79 or 87 basis points, which in my vernacular or in other people's vernacular would be 0.87%. So almost just shy of 1% for today, which is a fantastic showing. Um, I also want to comment small caps, which have trailed for a very, very long time, actually came in with a a very strong uh, 1.7%, a little over 1.7% today. So again, hopefully this means it's, the, you know, the, 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 the rally this year is starting to broaden out and starting to have the other stocks catch up with those spectacular seven, which have done so well year to date. So thank you for mentioning that because it pulls in two things that we've been talking about for a while. I mean, honestly, I sometimes forget that we're in the middle of September already, which is like freaking me out. So we've been talking about this since the beginning of the year is that, um, you know, we we are looking for small caps to come up, right, to come back up to, um, re, you know, reversion to the mean, basically. And so you're mentioning you're seeing that today, right, with the um, interest rate pauses, potential, right, looking into the future saying, oh, we might actually be at that point where interest rates aren't going to go up anymore. So small caps can finally come back up. And that's exactly what we've been saying for months now. Um, and this other point that even though the very biggest companies in the S&P 500 have done spectacularly well this year, that it hadn't been a broad-based recovery. It had been a very narrow recovery. And so exactly. once again, this might actually be broadening out where we don't need to, this is what you also mentioned before, we may not need to see those spectacular seven, quote unquote, fall we could see the rest of the you know stocks in the indices rise up to meet them. Correct. That, that's so. exactly right. I mean, for most people, as we're sitting here as of today, you know, the S and P five hundred, the headline index, is up about 18 percent year to date. Um, the head, the S and P five hundred, equal weighted, so the exact same holdings as the as the, the two index have the exact same holdings. The only difference is is one is capitalization weighted. So it's weighted based on the, the size of the company's market cap versus in the equal weight, each position is equally weighted. It gives you a better indication of what the average stock is doing. And the average stock right now is up five to seven, 6%, okay? Mm. So really quite a difference between 17, 18% and five and 6% year to date. So that's that 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 wide dispersion between the two must narrow. And and I personally think that it's going to be a catch up um, versus a a falling of those, you know, those top seven to 10 stocks. Well, we will see what continues to happen. Um, but yeah, if today was kind of a promising or at least a, a, a positive step in that direction. Um We'll see if it keeps I, going. I hope so. Now there are there's a risk for tomorrow. Oh. One of the big one of the big events uh, over the next couple of months, which I want to have people really kind of pay attention to, because this does have a 
pretty big impact, or at least it can have a big impact on the U.S. economy, is the United Auto Workers Union. Their negotiations expire tonight. Their contract expires tonight. Now, they've been negotiating for a while now try to, to try to lock in some, some a better contract for the future. Um, different pieces of news coming out saying it's hopeful, but not hopeful. So uh, if if we if they go on strike, that's going to be a big negative in the in the in the negative column for economic growth. OK, mm. the big three employ a lot of people and a lot of people that make decent money. And so that's going to that's going to crimp this crimp uh, consumer spending a little bit, potentially could. Uh, towards the fourth quarter of this year, which for consumer spending is the biggest quarter. Um, yeah. So is there any, um, you know, with your experience in the industry, you know, I, I can remember times when, you know, the UAW had some pretty prolonged strikes, um, but I can't remember from like an investment standpoint, what happened with that. Do you have any um, recollection of maybe what that's looked like in the past if there has been a prolonged strike. Yeah, it's generally a short-term negative for those stock and those industrial stocks in general, uh, because it's not just the big three, it's their entire supply chain, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're not selling, if you're not selling cars, right? Because you're not making cars, then everything from the auto dealership that sells it to you as a, as a, as a consumer, if you go all the way back to the raw material producer, the miner, it affects impacts every single company in that in that supply chain. And there's a tremendous number of people that are employed in those companies. So it becomes a big neg. It can be a big negative for U.S. economic growth um, in the short term. Mm. Okay? Generally, these are so painful for both the union and the auto automaker that they generally try to get over this pretty quickly. Um, nothing gets people serious when money stops coming in. So they all of a sudden it really focuses them on what's what's important and getting back to work. Um, second thing I really want people to watch out for is the government, the federal government, the potential of the federal government shutting down for a week or two, okay? Mm. Um, and while yes, all those employees most employees get furloughed in the federal government um, and they do, yes, get back pay once they're once it's resolved. It still is a is a pretty big negative hit to the psychology of the consumer and can impact a significant amount of consumer spending during the fourth quarter. So, again, that's a, that could be a big negative for what potentially could be a weakening labor market between now and then. Um, so it's just, it's one of those things that it's not necessarily baked into the, the economic projections, certainly not in the equity or bond markets, but is out there in terms of, of a risk. I always appreciate your ability to bring a temper, temper, everything. <laughs> so. Well, there, there's a, uh, there's an old saying and I don't know who said it. I think it's I think it's Confucius, but I'm not sure. So don't quote me on that. It says it's never as bad as it seems, and it's never as good as it seems. So it's always somewhere in the middle. But people tend to investors tend to um, 
get very, very euphoric in good times and they get very, very depressed in bad times. And if they could just moderate that a little bit, then they'll be much, much better off in their financial futures. Oh, I love that. It's never as bad as it seems. It's never as good as it seems. That's right. Uh, speaks to my my heart in um, feeling like, you know, being present with what is. Yeah, exactly. right. Like what is right now? What is right now? And yeah. be present here and take stock uh, versus being so either euphoric or depressed, right? On the pendulum swing, right? Yeah. How Come back to the middle. Um, yeah. So thank you. I love that. You're welcome. And let's talk a little bit about um, a question from our favorite. He, he's basically an honorary, you know, podcast member at this point is, uh, is Bob from Huntsville who gives us- We should have so Bob many, on sometime. Right? I think that would be a great idea. And then he could ask his questions live. Perfect. Um, so I'll, I'll ask him if he wants to do that. Um, but he was asking about that transition from work to retirement and previous wisdom had always, you know, like the, the recommendation quote unquote, you know, or the generic kind of advice had been, as you get into your retirement years, you pull your portfolio into a more conservative position. So if during your working years, um, you know, younger, let's say your 20s and 30s and even 40s, if you're in aggressive or moderately aggressive investments, which means mostly equities, right? A, maybe 80 to even 100% equities at some points, you're really pushing into the stock market. You're really pushing for growth of your investments that as you get closer to, you know, your specific date where you want to retire, that you start to step that back and you start to go more towards fixed income or towards bonds, which historically have had lower volatility, lower swings between you know the high and the low. So maybe if in your 40s, you're, you're at 85% equities and 15% fixed income, when you're in your 60s, you're at 60% equities and 40% fixed income. When you're in your 70s, you know, you're at 50% equities and 50% fixed income, right? So we're stepping back the risk and stepping up the safety over time. Now, I love this question from him because that wisdom has been challenged over the last 15, 20 years or so, right? When we had, when our fixed income and our bond rates have been really, really low, which we can see with, you know, even personal savings accounts, right? That when they're at 0.005% interest for an entire year, that has been reflected across the board with bond you know, bond rates, fixed income rates, money market rates have just all been really, really low for a long time. So over the last couple of decades, there's been a, a swing. We've talked about this on the podcast a little bit before, a swing towards staying more in equities so that you actually get some growth. So you keep up with inflation, right? So you're not, you know, in investments or bonds that are giving you 1% per year and inflation's at 3 4% per year. But are we moving back into 
you know, maybe an environment where we can shift a little bit. What do you see and how would you respond to that? It's a, it's a great, it's a great question. And I, I think you've, you've couched it in a very good manner because really this started in 1986 where all of a sudden the tax code was changed to um, prefer capital gains over dividend income. Okay. And so what happened is that also happened to curtail or, or dovetail or kind of coincide with inflation just being crushed by Paul Volcker and coming into a, a uh, secular downtrend for inflation all the way until 2021. So many, many years of, of disinflation or very, very low inflation, which we just now we're, we're currently battling the other way. Um, in 1986 to 1990 or early 90s, what you saw mostly was people who were retired would have almost 100% in bonds and fixed income. Wow. You would have you know, um, retirees virtually with 80 to hundred percent in their portfolios. In fact, when I first got into the business managing money, I had to convince people to put 30% of stock, large cap dividend paying stock into their portfolio so that they could keep pace with inflation. Because you know what, if you're at 65 and you're, you're, you know, you're, you, you have, 15 to 20 years left in terms of your life expectancy, your biggest risk is not a bear market in equities. Your biggest risk is inflation over that long period of time. And so we needed to keep the purchasing power on par that whole way. Um, Now, as you said, as we've progressed through and we've had ultra low interest rates, people had to go into equities, even for income. They had to go into high dividend stock. They ha- they just had to take the risk of volatility that it that was inherent in equity markets. And because we had extremely low interest rates, we had the Federal Reserve very, very involved in structuring the yield curve for a very long period of time during that, you know, 2003 to 2023. Um, and now they're having less of an impact as quantitative tightening is 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 occurring the 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 interest rates are back at more normal type levels i think a lot of people who are retired are going to have to start making that decision how much equity risk do i want in in my retirement so to bob's question the the general rule of thumb and i'm going to say i'm going to caveat this after i say it the general rule of thumb is as you get older you get more conservative because your temperament won't be able to handle the large swings in value. For example, when you're 35 years old, Bob, you're you're successful, making pretty decent money. Your net worth is really starting to grow. You took equity risk to grow your purchasing power, to grow your asset base. 65, 75 I mean, sure, you want to grow it enough to keep pace with inflation, but what else are you growing it for if your needs are already being met? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you may have a certain legacy goal. Perfect. That's totally acceptable. That's great. That's wonderful. But 
it also goes to the goes to our point last week, which is that general rule of thumb may not work in any or in in in, in a lot of situations. Everybody's personal financial goals, their financial situations may be different in retirement from another person. So you need to sit down and work with your CFP to come up with the, the best risk profile that you can tolerate going forward and expect it to change over time. Um, for example, I have a client who just retired. Okay. So just retired. Um, and we actually split the money into four different buckets, emergency cash, income, lifestyle income cash, um, legacy, kind of what the kids are getting, and then charity. So we actually have four different accounts that hit all of, the, of those different um, needs. Um, now, whether we actually split it out into four different accounts or is in one account, but four different portfolios uh, is 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 irrelevant. But at this point, it's you know it's a general rule of thumb to get more conservative, particularly with bond yields being as nice as high as they are right now. Um, but it really is a personal decision between you, uh, your spouse, if you have one, and your your financial planner. So you basically just read my mind because I was going to say there that it could also be not um, it might not be one strategy, right? Like that's that's exactly where I was going to go with that next step is that if you have the means and the desire, right to leave a legacy to your you know kids and grandkids or leave a charitable or philanthropic legacy as well to a cause that matters to you those funds depending on how you want them to be used or how you want them to grow it's going to be a very different strategy from how do i create the income that i need to be able to regularly easily you know, support my normal everyday life. Um, so exactly. yeah, I love that. I love that example of whether it's literal, you know, four different accounts that you can see, or if it's like, okay, I know this part of my portfolio, this bucket is my income bucket. And this bucket is my legacy bucket. And this bucket is my philanthropic bucket. Um, we can have different different goals in place if you have, you know, that, that level of assets where your income needs can be covered um, for what you actually need from a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And it, it might be, you have almost all of it in the income bucket, in which case that's fine. You just, you, you still have the other buckets. It's just, they're probably smaller than your income bucket. And that, so everybody has to really kind of go through that process, but generally speaking, the older you get, um, in my experience, the less, the less, uh, willing and able, uh, clients are to tolerate the big up and down swings of the equity market. And they want the more consistent cash flow income, the promise of getting their money back contractually with a bond. Um, and so that's generally what I see happening over years. I, so the, the two, Ooh, hold on my, uh, sound here is being one. There we go. We're good. I'm back. Um, the two examples that are coming to mind 
uh, right now. So I have a client um, who's in her mid eighties. All of her income needs are covered through, she has pension and social security. Uh, and she's like, I don't know what I need this money for. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So like truly she is, she's good. Right. And, and from her perspective of like, I get enough of my income from social security, from my pension and this, you know, the stuff in my portfolio, like how do I start to give it to my kids and my grandkids? That's the kind of planning that we're doing. So for her, when it like moves up and down, she's like, oh, that's interesting. I don't really care. Exactly. Because she already has it earmarked. She already has all of her financial needs met and she's just earmarking it. She knows it's not over my lifetime. It's over my kid's lifetime, which is generally 10 to 20, 25 to 30 more years of life left. So again, that becomes growth becomes a much, much more important part of that. Right. Um, as opposed to income, which she obviously has that very covered, covered very well. Exactly. Yeah. So if you don't, if you're not in the, you know, in a space where you will be retiring with a pension, which, you know, even people in their, you know, 50s and 60s now, that might not be the case. Um, so then your income bucket, right, then you have been building your own income bucket. Social security is going to be one line item of income, but your portfolio is then going to serve as you know, the rest of the income that you're going to need. Um, so yeah, it'll be a different conversation, but I just wanted to like throw that out there as an example of, yeah, there are times, and even for her, for my client who's in her mid eighties, there were years where they pulled money from the portfolio. They needed it for different things. And so it kind of goes to that. Um, one of the things we kind of talk about is go, go, slow, go, no, go over time. And people, don't really want to think about that all the time, right? So when you retire, you're like, no, we're going to go, we're going to travel, we're going to do all this stuff. And there does get to be a point for most people, not everyone, but for most people, there will be a point where you're like, you know, I've been a lot of places and I kind of want to stay here, right? I want to stay here. I want to be with my friends, that particular client. She goes to lunch with her friends. She goes golfing. She's mid eighties, right? She goes golfing with her friends. She goes out. But travel is kind of like, she's now, I'm kind of done with that at this point in my life. And so we we really do see the full life cycle in that regard as well that, yeah, there, there likely will be a time where you're like, I'm good. I'm going to just stay a little more um, close to home. So you do start spending less money um, if you don't have, you know, high medical costs for things. Um and it's just, it's interesting. It's interesting to take that into account over, over a lifetime where it's not always going to be the same. No, it's, it's not a portfolio has to fit your, your life. Um, not the other way around, which I think I've mentioned, I have a younger client who is fairly wealthy and he is very conservative. Okay. He fits the profile. He does not fit the profile. Again, these rules of thumb, right? Right. He doesn't fit that profile. His fit, his profile says he should be very aggressive. And that is not who this individual is. And I would never, I would never have him in a portfolio like that because it, it exceeds his emotional tolerance to be able to do that. So that is not what a portfolio is for. A portfolio is to help you achieve those goals, but to make those goals 
um, realistic enough given your risk profile. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, hopefully that answered the question, Bob, if it did not feel free to let us know what else uh, you want to know about that. And anyone else true too, you know, if you have what you think is a unique situation, we're not going to give like specific financial advice. Right. But if you have, you know, thoughts around, Hey, what if I really want to leave um, a big philanthropic legacy in some way, how do I start to talk about that? We can absolutely talk about some of that on the podcast as well in general terms. So let absolutely. us know, let us know what that looks like. So let's talk a little bit now about options. We have a few minutes left, so we're not going to go. This is not going to be a masterclass on options, okay? Um, Are you because sure, Hannah, we could certainly do it. I, we could, and if that, if people want, let me know. Again, send us comments, send us questions. Um, that could be a fun. Okay, I'm putting fun. I'm, I'm playing it fast and loose with the term fun here, but for you and me. That could be a fun like masterclass or webinar to give one day. Um, I know not everyone would be into that, but we could really nerd out on options for a while. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Options are definitely an area to do that in. So what I wanted to what I wanted to kind of illuminate about options for our listeners is not to go into, again, the nitty gritty details of what they are and how they work, more of a high level um high level explanation of what they are, what you're doing when you buy or sell an option and why they've come into the collective consciousness lately. And what I'm going to use as an example here is the quote unquote meme stock um, trend that we've seen with things like GameStop um, or, you know, buying options on, you know, some of the bigger, um, bigger stocks, Tesla, I think gets a lot of option trading. Um, and so, so, yeah, let's, let's talk about, because when I mentioned, we mentioned this last week too, when your barber starts talking about, you know, the different stocks that they want to invest in, that's time to start questioning things. And I feel like we've hit that point with options trading as well, where it's like when your 18 year old is like, Hey, I'm going to trade these options. Like, all right, we need we need to have a little bit of education around this topic so people know what they're getting into. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. Um, so just as a as a kind of a preface, if people think about the word option and what the definition of an option is, or you know, when you're going to eat, you have the option to go to restaurant A or restaurant B, right? So it's a choice and that's all an option contract in the financial markets does is it just gives you the right to choose to do something or to not do something. Okay. So it's why we call it an option contract because it gives you the choice. Um, and so there are two types of options. One is called a call option and a call option makes money when a stock goes up, okay? So each option is, is based on an underlying stock or an ETF, an exchange traded fund or an index, okay? Or there's a bunch of other things that they're based on, but it's why they call them a derivative is they 
derive their value from this underlying stock position. Okay. So they derive their value from an underlying stock position. So as that stock goes up, that option, that call option value goes up and it makes it makes it valuable. Okay. Um, why are they so, why do people like to buy call options? Well, they do because, for example, if you have 100, 100 shares at a $10 stock, you'd have to come up with $1,000 to purchase those 100 shares of that $10 stock, okay? A lot of people, that's a lot of money. And so what a, a call option allows you to do is for a couple of hundred bucks, buy a one options contract which effectively you then derive value from a hundred shares of that stock. So for a very little amount of money, a couple hundred dollars, you can gain the value of that hundred shares going up in value. So it gives you leverage, okay? So instead of having to put a thousand dollars in, you have to put a couple hundred dollars in. So but yet we still get a very high rate of return if the stock goes up because it's leveraged, okay? So that's really important to understand. Similarly, the second type of stock of option is called a put option. A put option is if you think a stock is going to go down, you would buy the put option. It allows you to sell back your shares at a predetermined price. So for example, if we have that 100 shares of XYZ, which is priced at $10 a share, but we think it's gonna go to $7 a share and we're scared because we own it, right? We think it's great long-term, but over the next six months, we don't know. It could be kind of a crazy a crazy time. And it, that, that worries us. Well, what we can do for a couple hundred dollars again, we can go in and buy a put option on XYZ stock that allows us to, to mitigate or to look to earn money as the stock price drops, our, the value of our put option goes up. So when you combine the two together, your loss is, de is defrayed or diffused quite a bit. It's defrayed quite a bit. So it's it's just a way for people to protect the value in the short term of one of their stock holdings. Um, but the reason why people are using these many times, unfortunately, Reddit, um, the meme stocks, people were using a lot of options is because that leverage. They're using it as a speculation as a speculative device saying, hey, I think in the next two weeks, Tesla is going to go up by $50 a share. Well, I'm going to buy two call options. That way, my return is very, very, very high because I'm making a lot of money per share on my option. And I only had to put a little bit in, a fraction of what it would cost otherwise. So for higher dollar, higher higher priced stock like Tesla or Amazon or, or a couple of the others, um, people will go into options because 
it allows them to have that leverage for a much, much smaller commitment of money. So again, we could go into lots of details about how call options work, how put options work, that you can buy a call or sell a call, you can buy a put or sell a put, right? There's there's all of these different um, ways that those transactions can work and make money or protect um, downside. But I wanted to uh, hone in on the speculation piece of it because I think that's where things got... I don't want to say out of hand, but that's where, you know, where it was like, ooh, it feels like we can we can game the system in this way. And while some people made a lot of money doing that, and then they went and talked about it all over the place, most of the people that followed on to be like, oh, I can do that too, then just lost everything that they tried to speculate with because it is speculative to do that. Right. Um, so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about the, you know, the reason to use options versus like what it looks like when you're speculating by using options. Can you can you um, expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So options are a wasting asset, meaning there is an expiration date. And on that date, they stop trading. They go away. They disappear. They're no longer there. And so it's something that every client that uses an option has to understand that these are temporary positions only to do certain things, right? Either speculate, generate income, or to to, to hedge or to uh, protect the downside of a position. Um, and so that speculation... Um, unfortunately has cost people a lot when they don't realize that it can go to zero, that that is an actual outcome, potential outcome in these types of assets. So um, in fact, during the, the meme stock craze, um, I believe there was a online broker dealer new to the game who allowed an individual investor to make a ton of money in options, but by allowing that individual to, to leverage the leverage, if you will, to take margin loans out to buy options, which he was, this individual was spectacularly successful for a short period of time before it went to zero. Mm -hmm. And then sued because he didn't realize that he had to pay back the margin loan. Okay. So, ouch. Yes. So <laughs> both the individual and the broker dealer got in trouble. The broker dealer actually was written up by the SEC and fined for um, allowing a newer investor to to do that, to get themselves into that kind of trouble because he wiped out his entire account. His account went to negative. So let's say you had a hundred grand in there. That's great. But if you if you're if it's all in options and it's levered, it could go negative value pretty pretty quickly. So I, I want to make sure people understand that the price of options in and of themselves is very, very volatile. Okay. It can go up and down a lot. It's why on a call option, the upside is unlimited. Mm -hmm. The downside, if you buy a call option, is only the amount you put into it. 
Okay, that's the most you can lose is just the amount you put into it. Similar, similar with the put. The most you can lose is the amount you buy into it. The amount you can make is uh, is very, very high. I, I mean, if the if the position goes bankrupt, you mm -hmm. know, if the underlying company goes bankrupt. Um, but it's something to really watch out for that these these instruments are very complicated. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, and I would definitely have a professional guiding you in using these because there's only three different three different things to use them in, as we've talked about. Generate income to gain to speculate or to gain a, a more exposure or to um, protect on the downside. So those types of, of, of and there's lots of different strategies that go around that. Um, which again, we could probably go on for a week or so, but it's, it's really important to know that, that if you want to learn about it, you certainly can, but I, I would just be very, very cautious. I've known more than my fair share of people that have lost entire accounts because they were trading options and it went against them. So when we, um, at juncture are using options, cause we do use them. Um, for yeah. those purposes that, that, you know, options B and C that we just talked about the, um, the ability to generate some additional income, right? If yes. you use them in a couple of certain ways, you can pretty reliably make, make a decent, you know, little extra income in your account Correct. and the protective side, you know, there are ways where, again, the most that you'll possibly lose is what you spent to buy the option and then it's protecting you on the downside if you need to utilize that option to sell your stock for whatever price right um so we do utilize options in our portfolios when called for or when desired by a client right but not yeah. we don't use them speculatively i would say right um yes and no Ah, so interesting. 90% of what we do with options, are, you're exactly correct. We either protect the downside or we generate uh, a more state, an income flow from assets we already own. Okay. There is a very aggressive strategy, which uh, you actually have to be approved by me if you want to participate in that magnifies the upside by using a call option when we go through a bear market. Mm. So for example, we just went through a bear market option. Some call options were purchased in certain accounts. And as the market healed, those options went, went up in value quite a bit. And then they were sold as we got close to the peak, which, I mean, we peaked probably two or three months ago. So. Uh, well, you know what I love about that is that we just talked about all of the different ways um, that it can that they can be used and that for people who are in that, that bucket, they're, they're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's try. We actually have the ability to do that as well. As long as like you're saying, you're very, very clear that this could go, you know, when you're speculating, there is, there is the higher chance for a lot of volatility. And if you're okay with that, here's how we do it professionally. I love that. Yes. Yes. We don't, 
we don't use the speculative word when we're talking <laughs> about it, but we make very clear that they know that when we buy these, the market is is down a lot, right? Mm-hmm. In 2022, the S and P 500 at certain points was down 25 percent, 26 percent, and those are about the time we purchased those call options. There you go. So, Timing's so, everything. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's yeah, it's they're volatile, so you kind of have to kind of put them to the side a little bit if you're a client because they're going to go up and down a lot. But when they when they go up, they do add a little bit of they add some exposure to the portfolio, which means as that mar- equity market heals and comes back up, you're participating more on the upside than you did on the downside. And that's what we call a symmetry of returns. And that's what at Juncture, at least, we really strive for is a muted downside or a managed downside and yet a a fully participating upside um, or in in certain aggressive accounts, a magnified upside. So we're trying to get that asymmetry correct for a lot of you know, um, individual investors, families, and uh, charities. So, mm. Well, as always, Brad, I appreciate the, especially the financial risk manager side of you, that FRM designation that you hold that not very many people hold, right? Like that's, that's a pretty unique one. Um, and I love the perspective that that allows you to bring to these conversations where, a financial risk manager, it doesn't mean you don't take risk. It just means you understand how to really uh, contextualize it and put it into, you know, practice um, as well. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. And if anyone has questions, again, love it. We love the conversation. We love um, to answer your questions and we'll be back next week for more. Thanks for being here, Brad. You're welcome. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, You can find ways to work with me at ExpansiveCEO.com and at XSquaredWealthPlanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, WealthPlanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.